I had applied 504 times for, wow. for different roles internally at Apple. And it all turned, I got one job offer out of all mm-hmm. of those things. Um, so I think that might go to show like, you know, there's talk about like the different kinds of luck in life. And one yeah. of the kinds of luck is, uh, you know, fortune favorites the bold, like just do things and then eventually something will work out. And I feel like that's, that was like my first break as far as just applying a lot of times and eventually something went through. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Data Scientist Show. Today, we have Logan Kilpatrick. He is a machine learning engineer at Apple, developer community advocate of Julia. He is a teaching fellow at Harvard Extension School and currently doing a master program of science in law. Today, we'll talk about how he become a machine learning engineer, uh, the internship he did in NASA, why you should care about open source communities, Julia, what the future of machine learning looks like. Make sure you stay till the end. If you like the show, give me a five star and subscribe to the channel. Welcome to the show, Logan. How's it going? Super glad to be here. I think this will this will be a fun conversation. It'll, yeah. it'll definitely go in a lot in a lot of different ways. Um, so um, it'll be fun. Yeah, awesome. So, how did you get into machine learning? You can start as early as you want. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, I think the the sort of my journey towards machine learning probably started back in high school when I was doing um, AP Computer Science. And I think the only reason it's worth talking and going that far back is uh, perhaps to give some context for folks that you know when I took AP Computer Science, um, it, it's not like you know there's definitely the group of folks who were like natural you know programmers and naturally good at that sort of stuff. I got a one on the AP computer science test. So which is the, if folks don't know, it's the lowest possible score that you can get on the, uh, on the AP computer science test. So I was not destined to be a programmer. Um, it was a, it was a really difficult, uh, journey for me. And, and after, um, high school went to, ended up moving from Chicago to California, went to community college, um, at a a college called De Anza college, which is actually like you know, half a mile away from Apple's uh, headquarters in Cupertino. Um, and while I was at Tienza, started working at the Apple retail store, which was ultimately how I ended up meeting the right people, getting the experience that helped me get in the door with my first internship at Apple mm-hmm. and then uh, ultimately my, my full-time job. Right. So what did you do uh, at Apple store? Yeah. So I, I started off just like the person who helps you buy a phone. Um, and that was such a such an interesting job because you really like the people skills that you learn in that job, I think are are one of the most valuable things that I've ever done in my life. Honestly, Mm -hmm. like having the experience of like getting to interact with people who you've never met before and, you know, are coming in with such wide arrays of of difference in uh, comfort with technology. Like some people have no idea how to use their phone. Some people are you know, I I worked at an Apple store in California. So some people were actual engineers who were working at Apple and and having to sort of be on the specific person's level as far as their understanding of technology, I think has a lot of parallels in what I do now working internally, um, you know, interfacing with with different business groups and things like that. And people who don't have an understanding of machine learning and having to sort of cater the conversation to, to their specific understanding. So it was a great uh, a great life lesson for me to to get those experiences. Yeah, that's a great uh, experience. And you mentioned uh, that experience, you said, get to know the right people, the right team. So how did you network and get got your internship? 
Yeah. So while I was at the Apple store, I was, I was networking like crazy. So people who, who came into the store who were Apple employees, I would always um, ask to chat with them again. So there was actually some folks who I met who I was just helping them with their phone or something like that. And then we ended up like having lunch at one of the Apple campuses just to hear more about, uh, about the work that they were doing. And I don't think any of those conversations ever transpired into anything uh, like me actually getting a job, but I think yeah. it was sort of the practice of doing that. And while I was at the Apple store, taking advantage of, of all the internal opportunities at Apple. So I ended up, um, I looked back when I got my full-time job, I had applied over the course of the two and a half years that I was at the Apple store. Mm-hmm. I had applied 504 times for, wow. for different roles internally at Apple. And it all took, I got one job offer out of all mm-hmm. of those things. Um, so I think that might go to show like, you know, there's, talk about like the different kinds of luck in life. And one yeah. of the kinds of luck is, uh, you know, fortune favors the bold, like just do things and then eventually something will work out. And I feel like that's, that was like my first break as far as just applying a lot of times and eventually something, uh, something went through. Yeah, that's awesome. And you only need one yes. It, it's so true. Uh, 500 no's, one yes. And, and now everyone's like, oh, it was such a, you know, the path, you know, in hindsight, the path is so clear. It, you know, it, it must have it must have happened for a reason. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, so you did an internship in NASA. Can you tell us how did you get that internship? Yeah, so a, a really similar story. So you know, I, I probably spent a year applying to NASA before I heard back from uh, about any opportunities, and mm-hmm. I'd gotten to the point where I was not only applying through the sort of portal. Uh, that NASA has, which is like internships.nasa.gov. But I was also actually reaching out to people on uh, on LinkedIn who are individual scientists who had research groups. And I would ask them, I would ask them, hey, like, I'm really interested in the work that you're doing, would love to come in and chat, even though I, for most part, had no idea what they were doing. Um, and eventually somebody who I had messaged like two months later messaged me back and they're like, hey, do you want to come in and chat? Wow. Went in, they ended up making me an offer right there. Um, so it's, again, one of those things that if you don't go and put yourself out there and put yourself in that position, like you're, you're not going to get that opportunity. And then ultimately left that first group I was in at NASA after four or five months or something like that and mm-hmm. transitioned to a different team, which is ultimately the team where I ended up uh, learning Julia and getting exposed to that whole ecosystem. Yeah. Um, so what, what kind of project did you do at uh, NASA? So the, the second project is probably the most interesting one, and that was the one that was using Julia. So we were using um, we were using Julia to build a decision making framework slash platform for mm-hmm. planetary exploration craft. So basically, um, lunar rover missions and and any sort of rover missions uh, when they're on Mars or uh, or what have you how they actually plot out and plan the traverse. Basically, a bunch of experts get into a room, they take out a map of Mars, and they're like, okay, here's an area that looks good, we'll draw it out. Uh, you know, These are some of the things that we want to do. And as you can imagine, um, from, a, from a decision-making standpoint, it's a really you know, under-optimized solution that the humans are coming to because they don't have access to like the very nitty-gritty details to make the mm-hmm. the data decisions. Yeah. So we built this platform using POMDPs that would actually simulate all the possible opportunities that a rover could take and find an optimal solution. So 
that's actually going to be used for the upcoming um, NASA Lunar Viper mission in mm -hmm. 2023, I think, which is super exciting. So the traverse is literally being plotted and planned out by the by the system that that we all built, which is which is super cool. Yeah. Wow. That's so exciting. Um, I can imagine like when you point out the map on Mars, it's just like when you talk about it every day, it's just like a normal thing we build is. <laughs> and yeah. uh, uh, that's, <laughs> that's so exciting. So yeah. you use Julia uh, for that project. And for our listeners who are not familiar with Julia, can you tell us a little bit what is Julia and what's specific about it that is a good fit for this project in NASA? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So Julia, for, for folks who aren't familiar, is a high-level dynamic programming language. Um, very, very similar, or at least I think it's similar from a programming perspective to using a language like Python. Um, so it's it's high-level in that sense, but it also has a lot of the speed characteristics of a language like C or C++. So you can imagine for basically in, in the case of NASA, this was an optimization problem. So in the case of an optimization problem where we're running these really uh, computationally expensive simulations, it makes sense to have something that runs at the same order of, of C or C++. But in the case of our team, you know, we had people with wide arrays of experience. Like I joined the team. I was a community college student. We also had people who were, you know, PhD students or had their PhD. Um, so it needed to be something that was high level enough that everyone could use it. And, and that's where Julia sort of fits in with this, this sweet spot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then um, so you started to learn Julia in that project. And then uh, what made you want to become an uh, advocate for Julia? Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question. So I I really started getting involved in the Julia community just sort of out of necessity. So a lot of the um, when I started using Julia, the Julia 1.0 hadn't even been released yet in 2018. So this was um, pre Julia 1.0. So there was a lot of breaking changes happening. There was a lot of rough edges in the language in the community. So I just had to go and ask questions, contribute in a few small places, um, and that process, I really started to enjoy like the fact that I could go and contribute to something that hundreds or thousands of people or millions of people are going to use in their in their daily workflow was super rewarding to me. Mm -hmm. um, so ultimately, I ended up getting involved in, in a, a few different community initiatives that, that went well. And I emailed the folks who were running the project and said, hey, I'd love to get involved in a more official capacity. Yeah. Again, going back to the theme of putting yourself out there. Yeah. Um, and they were like, yeah, we'd love to have you. And the, the rest is history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, for folks who are not familiar with Julia, what are some problems that Julia can solve that really well, uh, better than Python or R? Yeah. So for the most part, the, the things that Julia is well suited for are, are things that are computationally difficult. I think a lot of folks who are, trans, who are making the transition from Python or R are making the transition because the tools or the, the packages that they're using in those ecosystems aren't solving the problem fast enough for them. Like they're wait, like if in the case of NASA, if we had built that system using Python or MATLAB or R, mm. the, the simulations of trying to figure out the optimal uh, rover traverse would have taken days, maybe a week or something like that. And we yeah. could run them in a few hours in Julia, which is crazy. Um, so that usually those are the places that Julia is is best suited. There's also some very specific uh, fields that Julia is excelling in, like climate science, mm. um, a lot of stuff with um, epidemiological modeling. Uh, a lot of the, the state of the artwork is happening in Julia. So mm. lots of really cool and interesting places. But 
generally it's it's the scientific domains i think yeah cool thanks for sharing that let's go back to your uh journey at apple so you started as a software engineer um later you transitioned into this machine learning engineering role so how did you make that transition how did you learn machine learning yeah, so I'm fortunate enough to be in a program at Apple that gives me a little bit more flexibility than I think uh, somebody normally would have. Um, and that really gave me the opportunity to to make that transition and, and sort of dive into a completely different domain that I actually, I didn't have any, actually I had like one or two classes in undergrad about machine learning, but that was the extent of my experience. So it was, uh, it was a ton of learning. And I think the thing that helped me the most was learning about machine learning in a bunch of different contexts. So at, at work every day, I was sort of solving these problems. Outside of that, um, I was doing a, a master's degree. At the time, my focus was software engineering uh, for that master's degree. So I was taking classes in the machine learning ecosystem at a graduate level, which was really helpful for me. Mm -hmm. um, and then also outside of that, doing sort of machine learning stuff in the open source ecosystem. So I think seeing the the concepts in those three different contexts was was so helpful for me um, coming from from not having a deep um, academic background in, in machine learning. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of people are taking online courses or doing uh, either a part time program or, you know, full time boot camp. But uh, building project is always important uh, for us to not just learn, but also showcase our work. So the recruiters or hiring managers um, know we have actual hands-on experiences in machine learning. And uh, you mentioned contributing to open source ecosystem. Can you tell us more about uh, what you have contributed and how has that helped you learn machine learning? Yeah, I think at the, the the most basic level of this that that I've actually tried to do is taking frameworks like PyTorch and TensorFlow and finding the Julia equivalent, which um, is a package called Flux, and looking and seeing what are the questions that people who use packages like PyTorch and TensorFlow, what are the questions that people ask, like how to you know do some really basic stuff. And, and that's honestly what I started with. So I would find, I would literally go to Stack Overflow, find the most frequently visited questions for PyTorch and TensorFlow, yeah. and then go and literally ask the exact same question in the context of Flux. And the first thing that I would do is, hey, can I go find the answer to this question? And then if I can, I'll literally just self-answer it on Stack Overflow. Mm -hmm. um, and if I can't, figure out how to write a really well-formulated question and then go and find people in the in the Julia community who can answer that question for me. So I get the experience of, of going out and trying to find those answers. And that helped me tremendously. Like thing, just like basic concepts, like, you know, how to make sure that your model training loop has early stopping enabled, um, things like that. Like yeah. just figuring out how to do that in Julia in the open source context. And then that that process of asking questions eventually transitioned to me um, sort of making some basic contributions to the Flux package. And usually in the in the context of like things like documentation, usability, developer experience things, because um, I don't have the it's interesting to see like being a user of machine learning packages is, is actually much different than being a developer of yeah. them. Um, it, it's 
totally on a different level. Your, your understanding has to be much deeper. And I don't think I'm at that stage yet where I can really make like core deep contributions. Um, but definitely on the developer experience, I can, I can make those, um, those contributions as a, as a user of the Mm -hmm. package. Yeah. And, uh, so when it comes to hiring people, do you know people who contributed to open source community and got noticed by hiring managers? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think this, this happens all the time and I'm hosting a, a Twitter space next week. And I think the thread for this Twitter space is going to be, Hey, contribute to open source. And, and my, you know, my personal feeling is that open source is the, is the original proof of work. I think yeah. if you've contributed to open source, you've had that contribution validated by a maintainer of some package and that code has been merged. in. I think that's way more valuable than anything that you're going to be able to get out of a um, like a programming interview or something like yeah. that. If you can show a hiring manager, hey, I've actually done this. I've made this core contribution to some actual uh, machine learning package. You, you're in such a good place from a hiring perspective. Yeah, um, I like that because it's actually your code get reviewed by other people. It's not just something you put on your um, own GitHub. But like if you don't have a GitHub, so have one, you know, even if it's not reviewed, <laughs> it's better than nothing. So have those yeah. project portfolio will help you earn trust from hiring managers. So I really like the idea. And also, I think previously in your Twitter space, you mentioned that because uh, Python or PyTorch, TensorFlow, those communities are very mature, so it's very hard for you to make a core contribution. But uh, uh, Ju- Julia the, um, is still kind of new, so you can really make impact. I, I agree. I think this is one of the things that gets me, that, that really keeps me engaged. I think the you know doing something that people actually derive value from mm-hmm. is so is so gratifying for me and i think like just diving into flux which again is is julia's deep learning package you know i've made a bunch of relatively small contributions to that package over the course of a few months and i'm now like the number six contributor all time to yeah. the package which is super cool and i think it's again it's something that keeps me engaged and i'm like i want to go and contribute more and there's all of these opportunities so i'm always trying to to tell people like if if you want to do interesting and cool stuff there's there's just the the opportunities are are not lacking it's the it's the time and uh and desire to do the things that i think is is lacking in some cases yeah uh really well said and for people who want to get started in contributing to open source communities uh what are what are some best practices or like advice uh, you can give them yeah, so I, I almost wore um, my uh, a specific T-shirt for for this call, and I decided to switch to a, a just a Julia T-shirt instead. But the the T-shirt was going to say, "There's there's more to open source than code," and yeah. I think that's one of the the biggest points that people miss is they think, oh, I want to contribute to open source. I have to go and make a contribution to a package like PyTorch or TensorFlow. And Mm -hmm. it has to be something deeply technical and it has to be this really impressive thing. And the reality is, is that, you know, there's a group of folks who can make those contributions um, and you might get there at some point, but that's like the, I think about this as an, as an arc of being a contributor in open Mm -hmm. source. And that's the final step. There's all of these intermediate steps that you can take before you get there. Um, So I would, you know, just start talking to people about open source, read people's blog posts, write blog posts, share your experience contributing to open source, um, you know, do documentation improvements, all the, get involved in the community. All of those things I think are, are awesome steps to take before you contribute any code. You could totally do all those 
um, and, and not make a single PR with, with a code change. Um, so it's, it's something to think about. Again, if you're like, I want to dive in and I have the technical experience, do it. That's awesome. Um, but I think a lot of people don't go through the process because they, they don't take those necessary steps uh, to get to the point where they're comfortable enough to make technical contributions. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So um, you transitioned to machine learning engineer and uh, what is your day to day like? What do you do? <laughs> so it, it really, uh, in a general sense, I think a lot of the things that I do as a, as a machine learning engineer derive from the fact that I do um, applied machine learning. So the focus is really on taking machine learning technology that has been proven to work and solving real problems with it. Like the focus is on like, let's get this out into production so that the machine learning is actually impacting people. Um, so it's, it's a lot of like, how, how could we get this into production? It's um, understanding, I'd say it, you know, projects have a an arc. So initially it's defining, um, defining the problem, gathering all that data. So for, you know, the initial few months of the current project I'm working on, that's what a lot of the focus was. Um, and that sort of transitioned over time as we had our massive data set finally collected to being like a hundred percent focused on training models, running experiments, using different, um, using different transfer learning models and things like that to see what performs best. And then now it's really on more of the, how can we get this into production? And, and when we do get it into production, how do we make sure that things are actually working as we would expect? So it's a lot of analysis on, um, you know, mitigating error, understanding the edge cases, things like that. Um, and I really see this, you know, from my perspective, it's been an awesome experience because it's, it's truly a full stack machine learning experience. Like I think there's this notion that uh, in machine learning or data science, if you're not a practitioner that, um, you know, you just basically load up a data set, train a model, hand it off, and then, you know, you wipe <laughs> your hands and you go on with the rest of your day. Yeah. And like the reality is that part of it is such a small piece of the whole machine learning workflow and ecosystem that um, it's almost laughable. Like that's training models is actually like, five, 10% total yeah. of the entire workflow, mm -hmm. maybe, uh, if that. Yeah, um, thanks for sharing that. And uh, that's something we spend so much time that we, we, you know, we learn in school, in a program, but um, a lot of things you didn't know, for example, how much time you spend collecting data, um, and then in the end, um, you know, testing in production, right? So uh, definitely want to dive deeper in that. So from the um, beginning part, um, when you run different experiments to test different uh, models. So what does that uh, process look like? Do you, how do you pick those uh, models? Um, do you just randomly, you know, pick a few or based on heuristics? What is that thought process? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I, I would imagine it, it really depends on the, the specific project and the team that you're working mm -hmm. on. I think in, in my case, what, what we ended up doing was just looking at, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a deep believer in transfer learning. Yeah. I think transfer learning as a domain and, and deep learning is going to be the most impactful thing. Um, and, and you're already seeing that, that it really is one of the most impactful areas of deep learning and it, it doesn't get the attention that it's due. So Jeremy Howard, um, who created Fastat AI actually has a really good, mm -hmm. uh, talk and thesis on transfer learning. So we, we use in the project that I'm on right now, transfer learning, um, a hundred percent of the time. So yeah. it's, 
you know, how can we leverage all of the existing pre-trained models in a package like PyTorch or TensorFlow? Um, and, and actually, let's just try them all out. I mean, the infrastructure exists. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've done simulations on, on all of those things and then um, adding in fine-tuning for our specific use case. But it's, it's really trying all of them. And, and we're not sort of constrained by uh, computational resources, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing that. So there are people ask me that, uh, do you always have to build your own model, write your own algorithm? I think a lot of people feel intimidated about doing machine learning. So basically, um, the hard work has already been done by people before us. Uh, it's so important to learn the theory, understand how you can apply them. But you can just use uh, transfer learning and try different methods. But uh, can you, for folks who are not familiar with transfer learning, can you give us a kind of high level overview? Like what is transfer learning and what are some uh, best practices when you use transfer learning? Yeah, totally. So transfer learning at a a high level is basically just somebody took um, a massive data set, usually with a large number of output classes, and trained a a model from, from scratch to identify like tons of different, in, in my case, we're talking about computer vision, um, a ton of different types of images. Um, so things like MobileNet, VGG, uh, ResNet are all different types of models that you can get pre-trained versions on a, on a platform like TensorFlow or PyTorch. Um, so the idea is those, those models have actually already learned how to distinguish things that a normal model would have to figure out. Um, things like what does the edge of something look like this is like a weird concept to think about but like that's one of the things that a machine learning model if you train it from scratch needs to figure out how to how to distinguish like what are the edges the boundaries between things um some of the other weird edge cases that you might not have in your data set sort of some of those ideas and notions might already be part of that transfer learning um data set that that ultimately led to to the model being trained Mm -hmm. so you can take, again, a model like MobileNet or what have you and, and just remove the last two layers, uh, which are basically the output layers of the model, um, and replace them with whatever the specific um, output that you want is. So say you're just trying to classify cats and dogs, um, you would end up having two uh, uh, two output classes at the end, um, and it would be a, a cat or a dog, and you would just fine-tune basically those last two layers of the model specifically for the use case that you're mm-hmm. doing. So it's from a, from a code perspective, you can literally go and take whatever's on the PyTorch website, yeah. take exactly the same stuff and just change like a few different things mm-hmm. for your specific data set and have something that produces literally state of the art um, results, which is what's so cool about transfer learning. Yeah. Um, thanks for uh, explaining that. So um, when we do transfer learning, a lot of times we're using very, complex model, although we're fine-tuning the last few layers. So sometimes we don't know uh, what is doing well, what is not doing well. So when we try to put a model in production, especially you mentioned we're doing some error analysis, um, how do you understand what, because we're talking about uh, computer vision, how do you uh, interpret the result, understand whether the model is looking at the right thing? Yeah. So one of the, the things that I've used in, in the context of PyTorch is you can actually visualize what the model, the features of the model um, in different layers, which is really helpful. Mm-hmm. So you can see like, hey, what is the model actually learning? Um, and I, I forget 
if you just Google uh, feature representations PyTorch, like there's a great tutorial that I've I've read a few times now. Um, that's that's helped me tremendously in that area. But that's the biggest piece is making sure that um, what it's you know again if you have a bunch of images that have some like weird thing consistently in the background yeah. but you're really trying to train it on the thing that's in the foreground you want to make sure that the model's not learning the stuff that's in the background mm-hmm. um, and by checking these feature representations uh, you can actually or the layer representations you can make sure that it's learning the correct things which is super cool that's why i think computer vision is um the most interesting domain of machine learning at least to deep learning to me because it's so visual it's really easy to check whether or not things are sort of aligning with what you would expect and i don't think that's necessarily the same in in some other domains yeah um i think uh computer vision is also the kind of first domain i started to learn deep learning because i'm a visual person and just being able to see how those things are identified is so exciting and then there are a lot of uh, transfer learning models you can use. So if you know how to code in Python, you can easily load up a model. Um, if you just want to play with it, see how it works, you don't even need to change the the last layer. Just you can upload your own min, uh, images and then just uh, play with it. So yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, and you, I, I really like that you talk about this um, feature um, representation um, method to understand the model. And when you do error analysis, um, so can you give us some more specific process or um, example you, you do to understand those errors and edge cases? This really depends on on the specific project. Yeah. I think, honestly, the, the simplest form of this is literally just looking at places where the model is doing wrong, um, doing things wrong and, um, and visualizing those results. One of the really helpful things that um, I've done or that the, the team that I'm on has done for the project that we're working on is actually taking um, some of these images and overlaying the model outputs and the different ground truths that we have mm-hmm. for the actual labels of the image and, and visually showing those things. Um, so that we can all look at a picture together and we can all look at the the different outputs from the models um, at the various levels and see like, hey, does this make sense? Um, and then actually just get on a call together and like go through a few hundred images and say like, OK, you know, this is an area where something is wrong. Um, and we've we've done this to a more um, analytical point and like manually gone through and reviewed these and then um, sort of the basic computer vision stuff like reorganized where data is mm. based on areas where we're, we're potentially consistently failing in certain cases. Yeah. Um, so that I think, again, the, the nice part about computer vision is you can visualize the data, go look at what the model is doing wrong, figure out if it's easy for our brain to figure out, again, if it's a relatively small mm-hmm. data set, um, whether or not there's sort of patterns in the things that the model is doing incorrectly. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned that uh, with transfer learning, it's very convenient for you to run experiments on a few uh, models. So uh, in general, do you have any preference for uh, computer vision models? Like, do you have a theory that you always want to try? (laughs) I I think the I don't know if it's a if it's a favorite necessarily, but the the ones that at least from my experience tend to do the best are ResNet, VGG, mm-hmm. um, and Inception that also tend to do well. And then if you're trying to do something that needs to have a, a kit that's not running on the server side, basically it needs to be deployed in a in like a mobile context, then MobileNet is the is the best choice for mm-hmm. that. But 
Um, yeah, nothing sort of unexpected as far as the results of, of using some of those models. I think the results that, that I've seen sort of align with the literature as far as, you know, what's state of the art, what's best yeah. um, in that context. Cool. And uh, let's talk about model in production. <laughs> That's a big part. So um, can you share what are some challenges when we put model in production, especially in the computer vision models? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it, models that are involved in, in any way with like human interaction, I think those are the biggest pieces. I think the 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 machine learning project that I'm working on, like th there'll be humans involved in interacting with it. Um, so I think that's been the biggest piece is the human behavior impacts the result of what the model is going to end up doing. Yeah. Um, so if we don't, uh, you know, take into account the fact that what the humans are going to do, you know, there's a, basically a large degree of uncertainty associated with that. Um, so we, that's really been the biggest challenge. And I don't know if I have a, a solution or an answer to mm -hmm. that. I think in, in hindsight, we probably should have focused more on that problem um, because now as we, as we get closer to production and understand some of these challenges and look at the real world data, the real world data might not actually look like the data that we originally used to train the model mm -hmm. because, again, there's so much uncertainty with the actual actions that the human are going to take. Yeah. Um, so I, I would, again, in hindsight, if I could pass on any wisdom, it would be focus a lot more on the the human interaction and how the human is going to be involved in this in any mm -hmm. machine learning system. Make sure you understand the outcomes that they can that they can take. Um, and, and plan accordingly for those things because people are, aren't going to do what you think they're going to do in a lot of cases or the data is not going to be as good as you think it's going to be. Yeah, exactly. So if you have the chance, uh, try to use the model or the product that, you know, has the, your model as a feature and uh, see how you interact with that. And then uh, I don't know if you work with like user researchers so, or, or product managers. Um, so really understand the product side and the user experience of the model that will help you develop empathy. And then um, also when you sometimes calibrate results, right, you know, um, like how are you going to actual um, use, uh, use, run the prediction? Because sometimes uh, the model, the output of the model, the raw output is just probability, but the actual output is never the probability. Sometimes you need to add a cap. Sometimes you need to, uh, you know, recalibrate those probabilities. And without understanding the real use case, it's going to be very hard for you to make that decision. And then most of the time, it's not a good idea. Just take the model output as it is. Yeah, I, I wanted to hit home again on one of the points that you just made, which is, you know, understanding the the impact of the machine learning project you're, you're building mm -hmm. from a user perspective. This has been such a important part of the project that I'm involved in now because the, the actual project is related to some of the work that I, that I did while I was working at the Apple store. So I actually have, uh, you know, years of domain expertise wow. in the specific area where the project, mm -hmm. so it, it's a completely full circle experience <laughs> and journey for me. But I think that that has helped me so much you know, in comparison to, to some of the other stakeholders in the team, yeah. um, because I have that domain expertise and I would really, um, you know, 
highlight this and suggest this for other folks who are doing machine learning. Like if you can approach a problem and, and have domain expertise in that area, you're going to be in such a such a better place to understand the, the challenges that might actually come up from a user perspective. Um, and if you yourself aren't the domain expert, get that person in the room because again, it's such a, you know, you, you see things totally different when you have that experience versus when you don't. Yeah. It almost looks like your experience working at Apple Store kind of just builds you up for your projects right now. And you can only <laughs> collect, connect the dots when you're looking back. <laughs> A hundred percent. That that's the. I think this is one of the most true examples, and I, I don't think about it a lot. Um, but it's it's a hundred percent true that um, it's it was all sort of had that purpose <laughs> in mind, which is funny. Yeah. Uh, previously, I remember there was a debate online because uh, DoorDash asked its employee, including its CEO, to I think do like one delivery a month or um, something like that, and then some people think it helps uh, engineers or people kind of work on the backhand to understand the user experience, have the empathy. And sometimes people think, oh, is it just going to add more, you know, um, work to them, interrupt their, their work? So, yeah, what do you think about that? So I, I think the, the controversy that I saw around this was basically DoorDash using these corporate employees mm -hmm. to potentially... Uh, you know, if their drivers try to unionize or something like yeah. that, basically they're, they're going to leverage their corporate employees mm -hmm. so that they don't have to pay oh, okay. their drivers more money. Yeah. So from that perspective, I'm like, you know, that, that's obviously, you know, I'm, I'm for the drivers hopefully mm -hmm. making a living wage, but, um, from an actual understanding the, the, user's perspective of the tools they're building mm -hmm. without a doubt if you're an engineer who thinks that um you know and you work at doordash and you think that going and doing a delivery isn't going to help you in your job yeah. to understand the problems that drivers have then you you obviously don't have the the full context and, and hopefully doing that experience will will change those people's mind about it because i i think that's a wonderful idea and i think more companies should should do exactly mm -hmm. that yeah Thanks for sharing your perspective. And uh, so now you have a lot of hands-on experience in building um, computer vision solutions. What is something, uh, probably a lot of things that you learned from working on project that you didn't learn from just taking online courses? Yeah, the, the biggest difference was was what we hit back on um, originally around the data mm -hmm. and, and things like that. Like you just it, when you're solving a problem in the context of, of academics, you know, you're, you're just loading in a pre-made data set and it's already been cleaned and it's already like the you know, it's already hopefully debiased so that there's, you know, uh, a good amount of samples in all the different classes. Yeah. Um, and that's just entirely not the case. I think some of the biggest struggles on this project were, were non-technical problems um, and were things 100% related to collecting the data, cleaning the data, even labeling the data. I think, uh, you know, the, the specific project that I'm working on there's a high level of subjectivity in the, in the labels. So it's really difficult to know, like, you know, we, we're taking this at face value as the ground truth, but can we really trust it? Like what degree can we trust this data? And that, that's such an interesting uh, problem in the machine learning space that I had never thought about. Mm -hmm. and, and from an academic context, you're basically just blindly accepting whatever the data is. You assume that it's the truth. I, I would guess that most people who are using, you know, large data sets never like 
MNIST or any of the other fashion MNIST or any of those other data sets, they're, they're not opening up the data set and looking through the images. Like nobody does that. They're just applying the machine learning to the images and, and looking at the output. So I would suggest for folks, take a step back, understand the data. That's the machine learning is just the data. The machine learning techniques are, are simple and not really that complicated. It's really the data that has the most impact and is the important piece. So if you're, if you're just blindly taking in whatever data is given to you, then you're missing, you know, 80, 90% of the actual process of, um, of being a machine learning engineer or a data scientist. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, one example I can think of maybe there are images with real human versus, uh, maybe a large, uh, kind of poster of a human, right? Do you label that as a human or not? I think it really depends on the context. Uh, if this is something that's detecting how many people are in the room, uh, maybe you want to differentiate what is a real human, what is a human in a poster. And if you just want to, I don't know, add some filters to whatever humans in the picture, maybe you don't really care, right? Um, so I think that's that's very important. And then when you handed those images and those labels, uh, like you mentioned, take a step back, challenge some assumptions, and then check those labels yourself and check those images to see what kind of edge cases are there. So uh, this is a really, you know, sometimes very challenging, like you mentioned, to figure out what is the ground truth, what is the context, and sometimes it make you redefine your problem, right? What is your uh, what, what is your goal? So how do you, um, in this process, how do you figure out the actual ground truth? Like, what is the process? Who do you uh, work with? Yeah, this is a good question. I'm going to answer this um, outside the, the context of Apple, mm -hmm. um, specifically in the context of a, of a company that I've been looking at recently called Path AI. And Path AI does um, AI-based Pathology, and if folks aren't familiar, pathology is the study of diseases. So basically looking at um, tissue samples and using computer vision to understand the um, potential diseases that are present in a tissue sample. And this this is a great example because there's it's such a high impact problem. Like you're basically diagnosing people with, you know, life threatening diseases, cancer, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, so there's, you know, you need to be right, but it's also subjective. Again, the, at the end of the day, a human makes the decision of what disease is there. So in, in this context, um, the, the way that Path AI has approached it is using expert um, annotations and, and actually getting a, a majority consensus on these mm -hmm. things. So I think they, um, just looking through their website as I was looking at this problem, they send the, the results out to three different expert pathologists and they only accept the result if all three of those pathologists agree. And I think that's, that's one of the best things that you can, that you can do. If you have experts available, mm -hmm. get majority consensus. Um, if if there's experts that you can have access yeah. to, and if there isn't majority consensus, that can actually be really good data to potentially train the model on and let the model know, hey, there's actually this uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Like we we're not a hundred percent sure that the mo that the specific image here is um, is something. So this can really help uh, in a lot of cases um, when you train, at least from my experience, when you train machine learning models, the model is overly confident about cases where it's wrong. Um, you, you see this in the models, like 96% confident and it's clearly blatantly wrong. Um, and I think a lot of that is potentially data that's 
coming in that's subjective and it's it's on the border between some of these different classes. Um, so I think you can actually encode some of that information into the model and, and have it um, be less confident and, and less wrong, basically. Yeah, uh, that's a great example. Thanks for sharing that. So when you, for example, after you um, selected a model, you train a model before you put into production, and uh, in production, we don't just care about uh, the model's accuracy, other metrics. There's also like latency, other factors. So how do you decide if a model is good enough? <laughs> yeah, this this really goes back to the stakeholder. So yeah. I think, again, one of the one of the things that I've learned is get that answer as soon as possible in the in the process like i for myself what what i want to see going into a new machine mm -hmm. learning project is i want to see a checklist from our stakeholders it says here are all the things we're looking for before we put this model in and click the go live button whether that be uh, the latency, how well the model scales up, the accuracy um, of the model but then also the accuracy on the the potential um, you know, like previous data sets, like if you have production data that you've logged and you can see the last year of production data, run all that data through and see what the accuracy and the variance and all these things are um, in, in those specific contexts as well. Yeah, um, that's a that's a good point. And uh, um, I think a lot of that is not just thinking about those machine learning metrics and talk to the stakeholders, get their feedback. And sometimes their feedback uh, might change. So it's always good to show them what you got. And then they can tell you, okay, this is more important or not. So you can kind of tune your model for that. Yeah. And, and get these conversations in writing too. I think a lot is so much of what we do now is like a verbal meeting and things yeah. like that. And if you don't record things down, if you don't send out meeting mm -hmm. notes, this, it's a small thing, but like, again, people, especially when you're interfacing with uh, folks who, who don't have a machine learning background, some of the numbers get messed up, people switch <laughs> around a number and then they're like, wait, you said 84% accuracy, but really we said, you know, 94% accuracy or yeah. something like that. So get the numbers written down, make sure everybody's on the same page, continually, you know, reiterate those things. You know, if you're, I, I, I think something that, um, you know, I, I haven't done a project, but would make sense to me is like, have a monthly sign off and make sure, hey, we're everyone's still on the same page as mm -hmm. far as the objectives, because as you go through, especially a, a longer term machine learning project, you might uncover things that sort of change the scope of the project and all of the initial like write ups and documentation for the project probably isn't being updated um, as you make those changes. Yeah. So make sure that those things are being are being updated to reflect the current state of the project. Yeah, um, I think that's really important. It's kind of like having a contract with your stakeholders, yeah. also with your team, right? This is what we have agreed on and this is what we have done. And, uh, you know, if we change our mind, that's OK. That's, you know, going back to see. Uh, what what type of decisions you make, and then it's also helpful for you to really reevaluate some decisions you have made. Um, and uh, sometimes at the end of the project, you already forgot. Okay, why did I do that? <laughs> and uh, when you want to write a report, you don't know how to write it. So make that take some time during the project. It's hard because during a project, you want to move fast, right? You're like, oh, I don't want to write another document. <laughs> That's so yeah. true. And then, you know, talking about moving fast, uh, uh, sometimes we, it's probably easier to use some model that's already been proved 
um, you know, useful for a solution. But as a machine learning engineer or data scientist who also want to innovate, try a new method, do our own research, but the business doesn't care about your curiosity. They just want to see results. So how do you balance solving the business problem and the learning and innovating? Yeah, this is an excellent question. I think it's something that um, internally we I've, I've been in discussions where we've talked about this. And I think it, it really is a trade off between these things. And it's it's funny where, you know, I've seen things, folks talking about, like, how to assess the impact of a machine learning mm-hmm. engineer or a machine learning project. Yeah. And there's all of these different metrics. And two of the ones that you brought up are, you know, impact and also innovation. And I think um, there's there's potentially the impact innovation and then the speed at which you can get a project deployed are, you know, inversely related to one another. If you, if you're doing innovation, it takes longer. You're not going to innovate like right away. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I think that there's a lot of smaller pieces of innovation. Like even in this project that I've been a part of now, like we, we didn't, you know, build a new machine learning architecture or completely new type of Mm -hmm. model. Um, But I think what we've done has has been innovation and it's it's taken some time but um there's definitely that tension between the two things so i I think again even from a um from a management from a career perspective making sure that your your managers are on board with this saying hey you know we're we're executing to get this model out the door in the next six months like this is more of an operational thing like we don't have the bandwidth to create something new like we're really trying to execute for these stakeholders like making sure people are aware of that. And then if that's what you're doing, um, again, what you're what you're selling your your manager in a performance review is the impact that that work had. Like here's, you know, the number of lives that this system touched. Here's the amount of money that it yeah. saved, et cetera, et cetera, which is different than, you know, the number of citations that I would have gotten from this paper had we written and created something completely mm-hmm. new. Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing that. And uh, uh, do you currently work uh, work on any side project um, to explore your curiosity? Uh, not so. <laughs> I have plenty of side projects outside the context of work, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's really where I'm. I'm totally um, sort of intellectually fulfilled in that sense. Mm-hmm. Where at. You know, in my day to day job, I, I don't have like a 20 percent project mm-hmm. or anything like that. It, it'd probably be cool to have something. But I think in, in the scope of where my project is, I, I just don't have a lot of bandwidth yeah. for that. So but I'm, I'm totally have enough 20 uh, percent projects outside of work that I'm I'm good to go. And I don't feel like I'm, I'm getting burnt out doing the same things because I I have all these different contexts that I get to think about. things. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. And what are some outside of work uh, passion project you're you're working on? Yeah, that's that's a wonderful question. So I, I think a lot of my a lot of my focus is on doing things in the Julia community. Mm-hmm. So I, I spend a ton of my time um, talking about Julia, writing about Julia, actually contributing to different Julia initiatives. Um, so that's I would say a bulk of my outside of work time is spent on that. And then I have um, school as well, trying to reinforce some of these ideas, learn about totally different things. Um, which is a ton of fun and I enjoy a lot. Mm-hmm. But I, I think, again, a lot of the ideas and spaces that I'm thinking about go back to open source and things like that. Like I've been thinking a lot about the interview process that um, engineers and people who code go through and and where um, are there opportunities in that space for 
open source. And, and something that I've thought about a lot is the idea of proof of work yeah. and the fact that contributing to open source is, is a validated, you know, all the blockchain people love, you know, to have stuff validated yeah. by, uh, by nodes and actors in a network. And, and that's really what open source mm -hmm. is. So I love that. And I think there's a, there's a huge opportunity to leverage those ideas to help people get jobs. Um, and I'm not early enough in that, uh, that thought formation to, um, to, to have a good answer for mm -hmm. you yet, but I think there's going to be some exciting stuff in that space. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I want to definitely talk about that a little later. Um, the interview process is such a, a you know, painful experience for a lot of candidates and also for recruiters. Um, so um, I have some, still have some questions about the machine learning in uh, production. I think you mentioned uh, previously, I'm curious, so... Um, when you finish a model, right? You said it's it's not over. What are some process for you to maintain the model? You know, make sure, monitor, uh, decide when do you need to like update the model. Yeah. So I, again, I going back to the driving home the point of having these discussions with your stakeholders mm -hmm. because I think these ultimately go back to the people who are going to be. Um, using like using the model, who's going to own the model after we have, is it literally is our job as the machine learning engineer to just give you this model and then you're going to work with the other people and like get it into production mm -hmm. and you'll monitor it. And then if something happens, you'll come back to us or like who's going to own that piece yeah. of it. Having that conversation initially, I think is really important. Again, really, you know, in the, in the context of the project that I'm working on, it will depend on, you know, so many factors like how well things do in pilot, what some of all the, you know, what are all the metrics, key metrics that we're tracking? Mm -hmm. What are they trending towards? Um, where are the places that we can improve things as we add on additional scope to this to this project and what these models mm -hmm. do? Can we refine some of the things while we're already updating some of this other stuff? Um, so I think that's where a lot of the the opportunities will will come from. Um, but I'm I'm you know, at least in the context of this project, we're not at that point yet, which is um, which is cool, but um, it'll still yeah. be interesting to see w where it all goes. Yeah. Um, so keep aligning with the stakeholder, right? It's not just the engineering scaling problems and then um, to see whether it's also meets their criteria. Because w whenever you put a model in production, you're going to realize you have to make some compromises. The model in production is not going to be exactly the same as the model you develop in the in the pilot and then um, maybe there are some technical decisions you need to make but sometimes you need to bring in the stakeholders also previously you mentioned think about how the the user experience right um so yeah thanks for sharing that um so now yeah let's talk about interviews i think the data science interview process is kind of broken i see more and more data scientists have to study for lead code although i don't remember how to like invert a binary tree at work um so how do you think we can improve the interview process like leveraging like open source or um, some other projects people build yeah, th this is one of the things that I have such a keen interest in and, and haven't really taken a, the first step into the space yet. But to me, what you just said drives home the point more than anything. Like you have a job right now, 
you've worked at Amazon doing real data science work for the last, however, you know, four or five years, and and you don't know how to invert a binary tree. I don't know how to invert <laughs> a binary tree either. Like, you know, the, the reality is, is like, that's, it's, in my mind, it's a gatekeeping mechanism yeah. that large companies have to put in place because they, they don't have the bandwidth or time or interest in actually interviewing candidates. And that, I think, for them, for large companies like that, maybe that's okay. And maybe they are, you know, that's, you know, they're, you're going to, the reality is you're going to lose people yeah. who are highly qualified for a job, but maybe don't have whatever the, the thing is that you're gatekeeping mm -hmm. for. Um, so it, it's a question as an, as an organization, is that something that we want to do? Yeah. Are we okay losing people who are qualified um, just because they, don't have, you know, X, Y, or Z, whatever it is, could be a degree from a good school, could be not knowing how to invert a binary tree. Um, so I think, again, from from my perspective, as somebody who who doesn't know how to invert a binary tree, like I have absolutely no interest in, in learning how to do those things. I think if I needed to do that to solve a technical problem, sure, I'll learn how to do it because it has an application, but I'm not gonna spend my time doing leak code, problems and things like that because there's really no like it's not what I enjoy like life is life is short I want to spend my time doing things that have an impact and are interesting to me um, and I'm also again privileged enough to be in the position where you know I sent in an application to Amazon they told me that they wanted me to do a coding challenge and I said thanks for <laughs> thanks for getting back to me I'm not interested <laughs> like I'm not going to spend two and a half hours doing a, a hacker rank yeah. problem for you I have the luxury of, of not taking that job um, so I, I think and again, that's a that's a privileged position to be mm -hmm. in. But from my perspective, I'm much more interested in, in actually doing the work, doing things that are, are going to contribute and have an impact on people. Yeah. And I, I think the Leak Code website or the HackerRank website has some statistic like 7.8 million solutions solved or something like that. I see that and I just <laughs> I cringe and die on the inside because. You know, there's so many actual problems in the world that need to be solved. Yeah. And you you all are bragging about the fact that you've wasted 7.8 million hours of valuable engineering mm -hmm. time. And to me, that, that doesn't make any sense. So I'm like, in my mind, the future is, you know, an intersection of, of open source, of doing real work and contributing um, and having that be part of the interview process. I, I really think that... The, the challenge with doing that, and I've, I've thought a lot about mm -hmm. it in the last few yeah. months because I was like, hey, I'll just make this a company and do it. I think the challenge is, and if anyone comes up with a solution to it, uh, you know, take the idea and run with it. Um, the, the challenge mm -hmm. is how can you validate things like that? Like um, usually you would have like if I go and make a code contribution, a maintainer might review it, approve it, merge it. But what happens if that doesn't happen? And it's highly common that. I go and make a pull request. Nobody looks at the pull request for two or three weeks. And if I'm in an interview process, you know, they obviously need that feedback sooner than two or three right. weeks from when I make the contribution. So it's, it's difficult. Like you can't, what I wanted to initially was ask people to make a new contribution, like, Hey, go and contribute to some project. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, open a PR as part of your interview process. But if you don't have that feedback mechanism, it gets really difficult. So I, I think, you know, one possible solution to that is uh, companies paying 
those projects directly, helping the open source ecosystem to actually review these pull requests in a faster manner, which I think would be really helpful. Another option is, hey, let's throw machine learning at it, and I don't have to think about the actual ramifications of that. We can just say machine learning could help solve this problem. But who knows if that's really true? Um, so th those are the two options that I see. But I, I think it's a really exciting space, and I think that I would feel a lot of happiness if there was a website that said, you know, 7.8 million open source pull requests made as part of that interview yeah. process. And like from an ecosystem perspective, the benefits are all across the board. Think about HackerRank, for example, when you go and solve, like I go and solve the Amazon HackerRank problem. Uh, if I don't get the job, what's the value for me of having gone through that interview process? Okay, sure. I, maybe I learned something about solving that specific problem, but in the open source context, Again, you, you have that proof of work. Yeah. You've just made a contribution. Now on the next company that I interview at, I can literally send them a link to this pull request and say, hey, look at this code that I wrote. I've actually done this work already. Like I don't need to go and do it again. Um, so I, I think it's, it's really exciting. I'm, I'm super, uh, maybe you can tell, I'm super passionate yeah. about this stuff. And I think it's, it's, it's an awesome space. Yeah, I can totally resonate with that. And uh, especially those open source contribution, they come with you. And uh, the work we do in companies, um, you most of the time, well, in my previous team, we published some blog posts and we can share some code, but sometimes you cannot really share what you have done. So those side projects really can showcase, um, you know, the details, the, the level of your uh, skills. And um, I think for uh, hiring managers, I, I do know that although it's not kind of fully embedded in the hiring process, but as far as I know, people do look at your your GitHub link or, you know, if you write a Medium post. And uh, my advice would be if you have a website like that, great. Um, you are probably better than 80% of the candidates. And also the next step is make sure your contents there are readable. It's not just uh, a lot of code and packages. You know, tell people uh, what you have done. Uh, write an article about it. And uh, you have some output results. Uh, so what? What is the um, outcome? What is your, uh, your recommendation for the actions for the next steps? So those are going to convince the hiring manager that you're not someone who just writing the code. You, you're also a problem solver. You have the... Uh, the business thinking, um, you can communicate because that's very important. Uh, at the end of the day at work, nobody's working on something alone from the beginning to end. You <laughs> work with people, you talk to your coworkers, you talk to stakeholders. Sometimes you need to convince people and sell your project a little bit. So showcase uh, your communication skills through your technical work um, is also very important and that, that will uh, set you apart from all other candidates. Yeah, and I, I, I love that point about working with other people. And that's another area where I think open source contributions drive this point mm -hmm. home. Like you, you can't make an open source contribution without being part of that community. Like you, you talk to the maintainer, yeah. they give you feedback on things to improve. So companies, again, from a, from a value perspective and interviewing someone, they see, okay, this person knows how to take feedback. They know how to go and refactor. Like those are the things that we all do. If you're making a contribution to a code base in a company, somebody's going to review it. They're going to give you feedback and go through all those mechanisms. So it, it again, it, it just makes 
so much sense to me. And I think as one of the things that I think is that it's it's a sort of a generational thing. And as sort of the, the generation of folks right now who are super into the open source space, as those people become leaders in, in some of these companies, you'll see the culture begin to shift mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, but I think the the coding challenge um, ask culture is going to stick around until um, some of those newer folks come in into the positions to make different decisions. Yeah, um, I think sometimes it's not the company don't want to change it, especially for large companies. They don't have that many people to actually look at people's contribution. I think sometimes it's kind of a, a lazy approach. I don't think they fully believe in that as well. Um, so, yeah, um, I think they're there are going to be some changes and uh, also looking forward to see that changes. And uh, so you, you mentioned you learn a lot from working at a Apple store, especially like the people skills. Can you share something more specific? Like what did you learn? Yeah. I, one of the, one of the really big pieces and in addition to the point earlier about um, talking to people sort of at their, at their technical Mm -hmm. level, I think in addition to that, one of the things I, I had to deal with, and this maybe is not very tech related, but um, just sort of de-escalating conflict. Mm. I think a lot of people come into the Apple store and they are really upset because, you know, they paid money for whatever the product is and, you know, it's not working the way they would expect and their phone is the way that they make money. Mm-hmm. It's the way that they do whatever. And, and people, you know, people yell at you and things like that. And I think, you know, one of the challenges is uh, sort of absorb, absorbing that, which is not that fun, but also trying to understand from a from an empathy standpoint, you know, how did this person get to where they're at right now, where they're yelling at a complete stranger in an Apple store? I think it's a it's an interesting sort of philosophical question to ask. Um, but again, sort of, you know, everybody has their bad days and, and not holding that piece against yeah. um, somebody. So I, I think I just that experience, I think, gave me a lot more wisdom just in, in the conflict de-escalation. Um, and, and yeah, people, people are fascinating. And, and I think you really learn that when you, um, interface with totally different people from all walks of life, um, who are, uh, at the end of the day, trying to get the same thing. They just want to use their products to do the things that they care about. Um, and really getting to be the, uh, another piece, getting to be sort of the, the ambassador, the brand of a company, I think from a, at the Apple store was something that I didn't really take into account. But I think in hindsight, like really you're, you're the face of mm-hmm. Apple. Like what if you're, you know, working at an Apple store in Chicago, Illinois, there's no Apple Chicago campus. Um, you know, people, unless you go to California, you don't really see like the big Apple campus, the the circle. Um, so those stores all around the world are the ambassadors, the brand of Apple is the Apple store. Um, and I think the people who work there do an incredible job of being the face of the company and providing a great experience. Um, and again, for me, one of the challenges that I've had going from that setting to um, something like working at an, in a corporate setting is I really think that a lot of the magic that happens at Apple is in those Apple stores. Mm-hmm. I think you're you're close to the customer. You're getting to help people. There's so much excitement about new products, like the launch day of a new product. Like that's such a crazy day, um, and it's it's so much fun. And I think when you transition to a more corporate context, 
you're, you're sort of abstracted a few levels away from that excitement. Like I'm doing machine learning stuff, but like, you know, how is that expected? How is that influencing like the customer experience? And like, you know, if it's not directly contributing to their, to their like joy and happiness, I think it becomes difficult for, for me as a person doing that work to feel that same excitement. Mm -hmm. So I, I try to go to the um, Apple store whenever I can and, and feel that, um, that excitement and the, um, the wow, joy. Wow, that, that's awesome. Okay, so now I'm curious, how do you de-escalate the situation? Can we do a role play? Can I do be an angry <laughs> customer? I want to see what kind of, what do you say, what kind of questions you ask? Yeah, that's a, that's a good, that's a good question. I don't no. know if I, I don't know if I've, say for example, okay, I come in, Hey, I'm so angry. Yeah. My phone doesn't work anymore. I, I just got it a week ago. Like, you know, I, I feel so angry that why it doesn't work. And you know, what do you say? Yeah, I, I think it, it starts with, again, from, from my understanding, like empathizing me like, yeah, no, I, I, I hear where you're mm-hmm. at right now and let's, let's dive in and look at how we can get you the solution yeah. and, and get you out mm-hmm. the door. Um, and I think that's always the, the piece people don't want to spend their time. People don't want to, um, you know, do any of the, you know, they don't want to go through any, check any of the boxes. Mm-hmm. They just want the solution yeah. right there, right then. Um, so I think just saying to folks, setting the right expectations initially, like, I understand where mm-hmm. you're at. You know, I, I told, I've been there before. I've had those same problems sort of aligning with uh, somebody and then setting the expectations. Yeah. Like here's, here's what we're going to have to go through. Like if you want help on this phone, like we're going to have to get you an appointment at the Apple store and you're going to have to, maybe it's going to be an hour mm-hmm. and a half. Um, you know, here's a really great place. You can go get lunch somewhere around yeah. here. Um, we're going to get you the solution to this mm-hmm. problem, but it's, it's just going to take some time and uh, you know, thanks for coming in or whatever yeah. it is. So I think it's, <laughs> I haven't had someone yell at me in, in that context <laughs> in, in a couple of years now, but um, hopefully I could, hopefully I could still handle it in, in the real no, world. No, I think you, you did a, you, you give us a little masterclass, right? You say, you, you recognize that person's feeling and then you share a personal experience. So that person feel like, okay, you are on my side. And that's when they start to trust you. And now you set expectation, right? You don't over promise. I think this is so important. Like a machine learning project at work, sometimes we want to impress our manager. We're like, oh, I'll, I'll give it to you in a week. And then you don't deliver. People get disappointed. But if you negotiate in the beginning, I, I might need like three weeks. And then you deliver faster. That person might be, you know, excited. Um, so, you know, yeah. set expectation. You might need this process, but you do this kind of after you, you share a little personal story to earn their trust. And then, you know, you're being very nice and thoughtful sharing, um, you know, where you can get lunch and stuff. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I, I'm excited that we did a little role play. <laughs> I always like to tell customers too, like the, the reality is like, I work for Apple, but like I'm here as an advocate for the customer. Yeah. And I think people, people really align mm-hmm. with that. Like they, like, it's not like me versus you and, and I'm representing Apple. It's really like us together. Like we're both in the same boat, like trying to get you the right yeah. solution. And I think people align with that and they understand that so much. So it, it just makes it a better experience. Yeah. That's a, such an important skill, um, not for someone working at Apple Store, working in a, a service industry. I think for, you know, engineers, sometimes we kind of overlook those type of skills. We just kind of think, oh, those are like soft skills. You're just talking, but it's actually a mindset of whether you uh, want to have that patience 
to you know understand someone right and then um not just having that ego oh i'm an engineer i'm a i'm doing machine learning the cool thing and then you don't understand and you have to listen to me um yeah, yeah. so um can you share some mistakes you made in your career <laughs> this is a that's an interesting question i think you know, I, I am really lucky that I haven't had anything so far where I've been like, this was a huge mistake. I shouldn't mm -hmm. have done this. Um, I, I think one of the things that I, one of the missteps that I almost took was um, not uh, not taking an internship at, at Disney. Um, so I was, I had I had been given this offer to, to go to Walt Disney Imagineering and um, build roller coaster mm -hmm. simulations, basically, which seemed really cool. I was really excited about it. Um, but, you know, it was a really fast turnaround from when I would have had to accept that offer to when I would have had to move to L.A. And I was about to go back to school. And there were so many of these parameters that were in play. And I was like, you know, I, I just don't think that I'm ready to do mm -hmm. this. So I actually... Um, initially emailed the, the hiring manager. I was like, Hey, I, I can't accept this. Cause I, I can't find a place to live in the, in yeah. the time. Like I'd have to move down to LA. Um, and then ultimately ended up, um, you know, later that day, finding somewhere that I could live, pulling the trigger on that, emailing them back. So I, I was really technically declined the offer and, and only ended up coming mm -hmm. back. And thankfully the hiring manager didn't look at her, um, her email and see that I had messaged her because, um, that experience at Disney ended up being such a, such a transformational experience for me as an engineer, as a, as a contributor in, in a technical domain. Like I really, I don't know if this is the case for everybody who, who interns at Disney, but I really got to be like a full member of this mm. team and the people were, were incredible. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there was no like, hey, you're an intern, so we're going to stick you on this project that sucks and you're not going to have like I, I was like a core contributor to an actual yeah. project. And I think that was my first experience of, hey, this is what having a job is really going to be like. This is what the experience mm -hmm. is really going to be like. And I'm, I'm so glad that I that I took the leap of faith that I went and I did that um, because again, even some of, you know, lifelong friends, like the people who I worked with who were there were an absolutely incredible team of people. And I'm, I'm so glad that I got to meet them and uh, spend six months um, hanging out with them and, and building something that's really cool. So it was a great experience. And I, I think I was, I was worried about taking that mm -hmm. jump. And I think that's, often a lesson that I can, <laughs> I could potentially, I need to reiterate to myself and I haven't thought about it recently. So I'm glad we're having this conversation because um, I, I think that there's other opportunities right now in the near future where, you know, I might need to have the courage to make that same yeah. jump into some new domain, some new mm -hmm. area. Um, so I'm, I'm excited and <laughs> hopefully I'll have that courage to again, make the jump uh, when the time yeah, comes. Thanks for sharing that. And, uh, um, what was it like to work at Disney and what did you learn from that experience from that six months? It was such an interesting, such an interesting place. Uh, Disney as a, as a company is really unique because there's so many different domains of what they do. Like there's folks who I, who I met and interfaced with who, you know, I, I sat actually my office, uh, my cubicle was, was in the ride engineering studio. So all the people who I worked with there were, were, basically designing or updating all the roller coasters that 
um, that Disney has. Um, but then all the sort of folks who were around this campus, it was the animation studios, it was, um, you know, the R&D places where a lot of the really interesting technical work was happening. It was, you know, the consumer products division. So seeing all of the, the breadth of what Disney was working on, I think was incredible. I think, um, you know, in, in some context now it's, you know, you know, Apple makes Apple products and it's sort of very constrained in, in my mind, but I think the things that Disney was doing were, were all over the place. Um, some of the more interesting pieces, I think getting to see how folks can sort of live at the intersection of physical hardware and software, I think was really interesting. Like there was a lot of things where Disney obviously has a lot of physical assets, like massive theme yeah. parks. Um, so seeing sort of the analog between, you know, how does something go from a, a just a simulation of a, of a roller coaster mm-hmm. to actually relating that to a, a physical piece of yeah. hardware. And there was a lot of interesting things that I learned about how that process happens, how hardware in the loop uh, with respect to software is is sort of material and materialized. And you can actually build like really interesting, highly accurate software simulations that have small hardware mm-hmm. components that actually really closely mimic um, like full scale roller coasters and rides, which was something that I didn't think was possible yeah. um, and, and got to learn a lot about that. Yeah, that's very exciting because I think that also um, help you gain some skills about uh, working the intersection between software and hardware. And Apple, you probably have to work on uh, understand how some hardware works, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was great. Lots of amazing. I think that's generally the 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 thread that you have when you go to different companies is it's usually the people that are the most, uh, the most interesting. I think Disney has a bunch of incredible people. And I think that was the best part Mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. And, uh, so let's talk about the law degree you're working on. What made you want to study law? Yeah. Another, another really fascinating question. So I, I think for me, what I've noticed sort of in my career is that, I'm sort of trending towards uh, the open source being sort of a, a larger part of my job. Um, and, and however that actually ends up materializing in the future, I'm not really sure yet, um, but it, it's definitely going to be something that's that's a deep part of what I want to do every day. Uh, and legal implications in the open source space are, are so wow. fascinating and, you know, intellectual property and how intellectual property relates to the code that's being written is a super really delicate and complicated Mm -hmm. problem. Um, So I think from my perspective, I wanted to really have a a good, solid legal understanding of these problems so that I can operate effectively, um, you know, as a leader in the space. And the the program that I'm doing at Northwestern, uh, Northwestern's Pritzker School of Law is really built from the ground up for people just like me. Like it's, it's a program that's designed to be at the intersection of uh, STEM law and, uh, and mm-hmm. business. So it's approaching law in, in all these different capacities from a STEM background. Like the cases that we're reading are, you know, cases about software companies and technology companies and some of the challenges that they have. Um, so now, you know, I'm, taking an intellectual property class and understanding all the trademarks and, and things like that and trade secrets. Um, so it's been great so far. I think it's it's one of the, that was another thing where it was sort of taking a leap of faith. I, I have a bunch of, uh, a couple of friends who are doing law school and 
um, you know, they were telling me it's so difficult and it's really challenging and it, and it really is. Um, but I think that it's been, it's been such a great experience and I'm, I'm glad that I did it. And I think it has a lot of useful ramifications and useful implications in the, in the work that I do now even. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. You are so committed and the open source community, you're doing a degree to study law. Um, yeah, I'm very, uh, really impressed by that because uh, in the beginning, I, I think when I was younger, I thought, oh, lawyer, just you remember all those clause and, and stuff. But it's actually you have to understand business. You're almost, uh, um, you know, doing a little bit of a business degree to understand how this yeah. company works and what are the, um, the conflicts and challenges there. So uh, it's very exciting. I'm very excited to see after you finish your program, how do you bring that to uh, the, the, the tech, the science community? And maybe we can have another chat at that time. <laughs> yeah, I would love to. And I think the, the parallel that I'll draw for folks, which I think will resonate with people, is when, when you don't have an engineering understanding, when you don't understand computer science and things like that, the way that you live your life as a user of technology is with this ignorance uh, is bliss sort of meant like you're just using your phone. You're like, I don't really care how it works. I'm just sort of using it. And then when you understand technology, I think your, your eyes really open to, wow, this isn't, this is insane that this even like the fact that the internet yeah. works to me is insane. I'm like, the, it's, it's just crazy. It's the craziest idea. Um, and I think that, that same sort of thinking, how you think about the world and how you understand what's happening as an engineer is really, really a lot of similar parallels to uh, in the legal context, like laws govern how we live and, and breathe and do our everyday life. And I think when you don't have that legal understanding, you sort of live life with this ignorance is bliss. Like, you know, I'm not hopefully not breaking any of these laws, so nothing bad is really happening to me. But I think Again, getting that deeper understanding and being able to interpret and think about the world and what's happening to you from a legal mm -hmm. context, I think will be, um, I'm already getting that understanding and it's been a great experience so far. So would definitely recommend to people. And, and the nice part is this program, like I'm not going to be a lawyer yeah. at the end of this. I don't want to be a lawyer. Like I want to build mm -hmm. things and, and be an engineer and work in that sort of space, but still have the same sort of understanding that a lawyer does, just not like a not the pra the practicing component. I don't want to practice yeah. law. Okay. I was just going to say, I, I know who I'm going to talk to if I end up breaking some law, but you're not going to break. <laughs> <laughs> not me. I will not, I will not be a legal representation, but I can, I can suggest folks yeah. for you. Um, so do you have any uh, mentors that help you grow your career? Yeah, I definitely there there's been a lot of people I think over the last um the last few years who have who have helped me a ton. I think it's, you know, some people are are more in passing. Some people uh like my my manager at Disney is somebody who um really looked out for me and helped me a ton. My actual at while I was at Disney, I had a mentor that I still keep in touch with and and he helped me a tremendous amount. Um the team that I was on at NASA, um I I the he wasn't actually considered my boss. He was considered my mentor and he was, he was there, you know, three and a half years. We, we still talk all the time. Um, and, and he's been great. And also again, other folks I've met at Disney folks I've met at Apple and, um, it, you know, I've never really, I, I haven't prescribed to like sort of the rigorous mentoring yeah. process. Like yeah. I don't meet like weekly with any of these people, but I think it, it's still such a, 
such a powerful thing to do and, and get people's perspective. And I've been lucky enough that these people, like I haven't had to really go, you know, there's a few people who I've sort of um, seeked out their advice and their help, but there's a lot of people who have sort of just naturally fallen into place. And I think those people are oftentimes the the best sort of mentors to have. They're people who are sort of naturally there, naturally care about you, want to see you succeed. Um, and again, privileged and lucky enough that I've had those people mm-hmm. in my life and it's it's been yeah. awesome. And uh, what are some uh, important lessons you learned from your mentors? What are some best advice that you can share with us? That's a really good question. I don't know if I, if anything, if anything specific, um, I, I think one of, one of my mentors, um, is a, or he, he just retired from, from Disney after being one of the design directors there for a really long time. And, um, we, we were chatting the other day about writing down a list of things that like, I want to do in my life. Like not, not like goals as far as like, you know, career wise, but just like interesting things that, that I want to do and, and starting to think about, um, what, what I need to do now in order to make those things happen. Like I want to go to space at some point. Like I think going to the moon would be awesome. Um, so what do I need to do now, uh, to, to start preparing myself potentially to, to do something like that? Like all these, uh, again, sort of more like, more like life goals and not career goals and like things that I want to sort of check off when I'm, um, when I'm done and, and life is over. And I think thinking about that now in an early context, I think lets you position your life so that you can do all these things. And, you know, everyone loves data science and machine learning, but there's a lot more to life than, than data mm-hmm. science and machine learning. So making sure that you're, you're sort of building that piece in so that you have that fulfillment and you have those other things that you're, you're excited about. I think, um, it's not something that I did. Like I was, you know, I would write down very specifically, like, what do I want to do by the time I'm 25? What do I want to do by the time I'm 30? And I hadn't really taken a step back and say, what do I want for myself from a life experience perspective, not just from a career perspective? Yeah. I think that's really important. Um, So can you share some of the things top on your list? <laughs> I, I definitely want to go to space mm-hmm. at some point. I think that would be awesome. Um, probably going to be a little bit before that happens because I'm, I'm not a billionaire at the moment. Um, but that's, that's definitely one. I, I think I'm really interested um, in Formula One racing. I think I watched the Netflix yeah. documentary series on Formula One and I'm like, that's, it looks so cool and it looks like so much fun. So I, at some point would, would love to, I, that's another thing that's like super expensive and um, I can't personally afford to do it, but if there's an opportunity to do mm-hmm. something in that space, I think that would be really exciting. Um, I, I also have always been super fascinated by um by flying and I'd love to get a pilot's license at some point. I was working towards it when I was really young, but haven't, um, haven't dabbled at all recently, but I think that's probably the most attainable thing that I can do because it's not, you know, millions Mm -hmm. of dollars like the other two are. Uh, That's really cool. Thanks for sharing that. So now taking those advice from your mentors and your own experience, if you're going to mentor someone today, what are some advice you want to give them? One of the things that I, it really depends where folks are. So I, I've mentored a lot of folks uh, through Lambda School, which I think just recently had its name changed to something else. But Lambda School basically is a is a coding mm-hmm. boot camp for folks who, who don't have any um, technical programming experience. And I've gotten to meet people who 
um, I don't think I normally would have would have met who are on this technical education journey and really trying to impart a lot of the things that we've that we've talked about today. I think, um, you know, the the consistency and the determination aspect of of life, I think, is one of the underappreciated things like you aren't going to always just get lucky and the right opportunity falls into your place. But I, I really do deeply believe that um, if you're, if you're taking shots on goal and you're, you're continuing to uh, put yourself out there again, good things are always mm-hmm. going to happen. And I, it's, I haven't figured out a good way to like get people to actually do that. Like, I think I, I tell a lot of people, Hey, you should be, you know, putting yourself out there and all these yeah. opportunities. And I think there's, you know, people don't always listen for, for whatever reason. So I think that's, that's another one of the, the challenges that I have as a, as, as a mentor, how can I actually effectively help people um, and not, not tell them directly what to do, but help them see or understand the perspective that I'm sharing in a way that the, they'll want to take the advice and actually go and run with it. And I haven't figured that part, that part out yet. So hopefully um, I don't know if there's any good mentors out there that have, but if there are, um, let me know what the, yeah. what the answer is to that. Um, Cause it's something that I start, even with like, I have a little brother, like how do I get my little brother to, to take some mm-hmm. of this advice? Um, and you know, it, it's, it's a challenge. I think um, yeah. it's a, it's a difficult thing to, to yeah. get over. I think, uh, yeah, that's a good question because people don't like to be told what to do. Um, I think a lot of time it takes a lot of uh, listening to see, understand their personality. What do they want? It's more like um, empower them to do do the things that's kind of best for them, not to put them in some kind of roadmap uh, way design for them. But it is hard. Sometimes I kind of can help impose my own perspective to like other people. But then I realize, well, you know, they should find whatever um, you know, the suitable for them and my job is to make them feel empowered. Yeah. I, I've seen a lot of talk recently on Twitter about, um, like the, the prescription of other people's success onto mm-hmm. you, um, as, as the person who I'm trying to help or, or share my ideas with. It, it's not often, a you know, it's not a one-to-one translation. Like somebody could copy the exact same things that I've done mm-hmm. in my career, go and work at the Apple store, go and do all those things. It doesn't mean that the outcome is going to be the same. And it also doesn't mean that, that that's the right approach for, for you to take. I think um, one of the, the good quotes around this is, uh, you know, people talking about their success is like somebody sharing the winning lottery numbers. Um, you know, it, the winning lottery numbers don't help you win the next lottery. It's still, uh, you know, it's still luck. I mean, again, there's other factors, but um, that I like to think about that general idea when I'm giving people mm. feedback and, you know, my advice isn't, uh, it's not worth its weight in gold, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah thanks for sharing that. Um, and did you learn to code from Lambda school? No, so I, I didn't. I, I just mentored folks um, through Lambda School, but I, I learned to code um, at community college, taking uh, C++ mm-hmm. classes at night, which was a, um, <laughs> it was a difficult Yeah, hearing. so you mentioned in an AP class, you got a low score. So how did you overcome that, that challenge? I think that also kind of maybe frustrates you, right? In the beginning, you have that fear, oh, what if I don't do well? So how did you, you know, go through that path? 
Yeah, I think part of it was I was not at the time intellectually mature enough to really understand what computer science, like I think I took that computer science class, but I, I think I really didn't have any idea what was going on. Uh, and I'm surprised that I made it through actually uh, the actual class. But, um, and again, I think a lot of it was just from a, from a maturity mm -hmm. standpoint. My, my interest was piqued in computer science so much because of um, Flappy Bird, the, the iOS app, actually. I had heard that the people who made the one guy who made Flappy Bird, which was the game where you just tap and the bird goes through these like pipes yeah. on the screen that are like generated. Um, I, I read that he was making like $800,000 a day or something <laughs> like that. And I was like, hold on a second. I can do exactly what he's doing. There's no way that he has some knowledge that I can acquire. So I would actually in, in high school, I didn't have a, a Mac yet. So I would go to the library where they had a Mac and I would watch these videos from a guy called um, Matt Heaney apps and he would basically walk you through how to build an app and I built like a knockoff um, Flappy Bird version didn't again didn't really understand how to build an app I was really just sort of copying what mm -hmm. he was doing um, and, and that didn't end up working but I think that really inspired me to want to continue to push further down the computer science route but you know there was definitely moments uh, when I was at community college where I was like you know, I'm taking C++ classes. I, I really just think pointers don't make any sense. I'm like, why why do pointers exist? Um, and I remember having conversations. I was like, you know, maybe I'm not uh, cut out for, for computer science. Maybe I'm not cut out to be a, a programmer. And I'm glad that I uh, that I pushed through because I, I enjoy it so much now. And it's, um, it's a yeah, ton of fun. Yeah, thanks for sharing that story. I think there was also a time when I feel like I'm not cut to be a data scientist. And then um, you just have to try every day. There's still a lot of things I don't know. I think what's important to know enough things to solve a problem and learn how to, people say that, you know, build a plane while you're flying it. So that's a lot of what we do, <laughs> even at, uh, you know, people call it fan companies. There are still challenges we're facing every day. And then we also sometimes feel, you know, we're not smart enough or, you know, a lot of things we don't know. So um, it's okay if you just uh, uh, started your journey because that's uh, everybody starts. So, a hundred percent. I was just in a meeting the other day and someone was remarking that, hey, this kind of feels like we're building the plane while we're flying it. And I was like, yep, that's exactly how I feel. So mm -hmm. um, I, I love that yeah. you shared that. Um, before we wrap up, so how do you see the future of machine learning? Yeah, this, you know, it, it's a it's a little bit of a loaded yeah. question. I think that one of the, you know, there's a few different trends in machine learning that I think will happen. One of them is with the stuff that you're seeing with uh, platforms like mm -hmm. Hugging Face. I think a lot more machine learning will happen in the open. I think right now, you know, people train models and it's really a more about like the, the stuff that gets trained and shared is like very state of the art coming out of research institutions. But I think what Hugging Face is doing is saying, hey, if you're a machine learning practitioner or a hobbyist, come share your machine learning models on our platform. And um, that means anyone can basically get access to those things. So, you know, platform, things like, you know, random problems that you're trying to solve with machine learning, there's now a solution that's out there and, and anyone can go and get access to that. So that will be a, a super important from my perspective trend. And then you'll see the, the transfer learning aspect of this sort of really build on top and, and explode. I think transfer learning will become sort of 
transfer learning will be the mechanism in which machine learning and software engineering really converge. I think hug, the, the thesis behind Hugging Face, and I've talked to some of the folks there, is that uh, a normal software engineer in five years from now will become a, a machine learning engineer. The, the two fields will, will converge together because machine learning will become um, a lot easier yeah. to do with platforms like Hugging Face and, and other things like that. So yeah, interested to hear any any thoughts on yeah. that. Yeah, um, I like that you, you mentioned uh, um, like Hugging Face or some other type of open source communities. And I think probably data sharing and model sharing, of course, you know, within the, the legal constraints would be a lot easier and it's also easier for people to learn. So for me, I think there are gonna, still going to be a lot of uh, researchers and machine learning engineers uh, looking to the algorithms and productions. And uh, for other folks like uh, maybe data analysts or BI analysts or software engineer, product managers, there will be tools for them so they can, you know, either call some function or click a button uh, to, you know, use something very simple. And if you think about it, it's something we already in our life every day, when you call the pharmacy, it's, uh, you know, it's probably machine learning algorithm, AI answer your, your question. So I think it's already there. I think what's important is to teach people how it actually works. So what is the um, constraints? I think a lot of cases, it's probably still relying on some type of hybrid model, right? Machine learning and uh, uh, have some human um, in the loop. Um, and also, I think there are probably going to be there are going to be more people like you studying law to really understand you know, I don't like the word regulation. It sounds like you're you're restricting people, but it's kind of you know regulation. How do we use the uh, amplify the good of machine learning and not let that take advantage of that? Because the algorithm is like really smart. If just a bunch of very smart people uh, coding algorithm and figure out how do we how to get us more addicted to you know an app, then we have no way to fight against that. We have all you know vulnerability in our psychology. So that's something um, I want to see more. I think it's like it's a difficult question. How do you balance that and not also like confine our own freedom of choice? I don't have an answer to yeah, that. Yeah, no, I. I I love that. I think I, I was literally just the other day um, looking at uh, the University of Cambridge has a remote program and it's specifically focused on um, the ethics mm -hmm. of AI in society. And I think that um, that field for people who are studying ethics in AI and then also building um, responsible, there's a company who I know some folks at called Parity AI, and they're specifically focused on responsible and fairness um, artificial intelligence. I think it's going to be one of the exploding spaces as people start to look at, um, I think in the open source space, it's like open source mm -hmm. security. Um, how, do, how can we secure the open source ecosystem? And I think in machine learning, it's going to be, how can we make sure that our machine learning um, ecosystem is fair, transparent, um, and equitable? And I think right now the reality is it's not. Yeah. Um, and, and that's just one of the challenges that, that we have to grapple with as, as engineers yeah, in this space. Thanks for sharing that. So I feel like you 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 know a lot of different aspects of machine learning, AI, the industry. You're so curious about a lot of things. So how do you uh, learn, say, new machine learning algorithm to other things you're curious about? 
From a structure standpoint, one of the things that I, I really am fascinated by sleep. Sleep is one of the most interesting things to me yeah. about life. Uh, there's a really good book called Why We Sleep. So if you haven't mm -hmm. read that book, uh, totally fascinating. I think it, it changed yeah. my life and it changed my relationship with, with sleeping. Um, but before I sleep every day, I, I try and read for 30 minutes. And I think that having that regimented structure of making sure that I get time to read every day and, and learn about new things and a bunch of like, I have a stack of books and it's uh, probably a different domain mm -hmm. every day. I try not to like keep reading the yeah. same thing for uh, like a week on end. Um, and I think that really gives me exposure to a bunch of different ideas. And, and like we talked about before, putting those ideas in practice in a bunch of different contexts really helps cement the understanding in, in the work context, in the open source context, in sort of a hobbyist context. I think you can, uh, that's, that's the best way to learn is to see things from different points of views. And that's what I try to do whenever I'm uh, whenever I'm learning something totally yeah, new. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I see you write a lot of blog posts. I think sometimes writing things down, try to teach people, is another great way to learn. Um, I, I agree 100%. My belief is you don't actually know something until you've tried to teach yeah. somebody else it. So I, I totally agree. I think I've learned um, a term. I actually usually start my learning process. When I want to learn something new, I go and look at blog posts that other people have written, and I come up with a title for my my version of the blog post, and then I go and learn about the area. And as I'm like I'm writing one right now on uh, data engineering in Julia, and I have a, a data engineering mm -hmm. with Python book, and I'm reading about like, hey, what are people who are in the Python space? looking for in, in data engineering workflows and, and how can I sort of guide those people who want to do it in the context of Julia. And, you know, and for all transparency, I know nothing about yeah. data engineering. I'm literally learning it as I'm writing mm -hmm. this post. Um, but I, I still think it's, it's such a, it's a really great way to go from something totally theoretical to something like directly applied um, by writing. A, yeah, especially when you try to kind of translate those engineering uh, guidelines to a different language. I think you really have to have a deeper yeah. understanding of it and then um, express it in a way that other people can understand. So, yeah, that's a that's an awesome way to learn. So what is something you're excited about right now in your life or career? One of the, the things I think at the moment that I'm most excited about is, uh, well, for, for one piece, I actually just made the, made the transition, I guess is not the, is not the right way of framing it, but my, my official job title as the, as the community manager for the Julia language switched over to being a, as you mentioned at the beginning of the call, um, a developer community advocate. And I think that really embodies the work that I do better um, than being a community manager. I think the, the word managed has a, has a bunch of interesting connotations. Um, and the reality is I'm not managing anyone who's yeah. in the community. I'm, I'm really advocating on their behalf um, and, on the, and on the behalf of the product. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about that and sort of getting more into the developer relations ecosystem and, and exploring that space. So I think I'm, I'm super stoked about that. And hopefully um, some some interesting and fun things will, will transpire from all yeah, that work. Thanks for sharing that. And for people who want to uh, get in touch with you, uh, read your blogs or uh, see what's something new, um, you know, keep up with you, where can they find you online? Best place, probably uh, Twitter, which is at official Logan K, or if you just look up Logan Kilpatrick, um, and then LinkedIn as well. I've got some some content on okay, there. Okay, cool. Um, 
I really enjoyed our conversation and I learned a lot from your your stories. And I'm very excited to see where you're going with your、uh, law degree and open source、um, effort. And、uh, maybe we'll chat again in the future. Yeah, this this was awesome, and I, I think it totally was great to chat. I think you've had a bunch of excellent guests.、Um, On on your show, so I think people who are listening to podcasts like this are a hundred percent making the the right investment of their time、uh, for their career and from a from a data science and machine learning perspective. So super grateful to be on here and excellent job、um, hosting me today. Thank you, I appreciate that.